You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. All aboard, fellas. What's the first action movie you remember seeing? Well, for me, may have been something beforehand, but I'm too I was maybe too young to remember. Like I'm sure I saw, you know, Batman and Batman Returns when I was younger, but I don't remember the exact act of watching them. But I do know that my father in his uh in his ways got a hold of a jailbroken cable box so we had all the pay-per-view channels for free and when i was young i distinctly remember in our old brooklyn home hanging out in the living room watching die hard with a vengeance a lot and loving it it was a great it's a great uh uh foreboding uh forbearance for where my tastes were going to lie in the future I was a big old action boy. I loved me some uh, Bruce Willis. I loved me some uh, some good old racial tension with Bruce and Sam in that movie, you know. Uh, and it was just a great movie. And one when I revisited when I was older, I was like, yeah, this is actually a good movie and not something that got uh, the childhood rose-colored glasses making me think they were good. So uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance was uh, my first action movie I remember watching. Much like Tom, I have movies that I – know i watched i mean i've I've probably said it before on the show the first ever movie that i would have seen was my father holding his newborn child in his arms watching batman 89 on hbo and in terms of action films you know if you count aladdin from disney's an action film i'm sure i saw that sometimes a kid but in terms of remember seeing it's actually more in line with the first movie that i ever saw uh in terms of i remember vividly uh going to the theater uh even though i was very little it was 95 going to the theater to see Batman forever and what a what an incredible thing that that felt like because it just I remember I used to watch Batman the animated series as a kid and obviously Batman's punching out you know Two-Face and the Riddler on my TV but now he's giant on a big screen doing it and how cool that was and everything just felt everything about it felt like oh this is amazing Uh, how, how are people not freaking out about this this is incredible and really just I, it meant a lot to me as a kid, Batman Forever. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're discussing what's considered to be one of the first action movies. Mike Scott from the podcast Action for Everyone joins the show to discuss 1903's The Great Train Robbery. 
Our guest today is the host of Adkins Undisputed, the most complete Scott Adkins podcast in the world, and one of my favorite people on what we call action film Twitter. Uh, Mike Scott joins us today to talk about the Great Train Robbery. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little intimidated to be on this show because you guys talk about, you know, real movies and you have people like Vice and Matt Singer on who are way smarter. I'm just an idiot who likes movies where people get kicked in the face. So I'm uh, I'm right. excited to be here, but I'm a little intimidated. All right, listen, number one, <laughs> you, you say that shit, but you do a podcast where you get to talk about Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning, which is, <laughs> I legit, I'm not being ironic, is one of the best movies I've ever seen. So stow that humble bullshit right now and just know <laughs> you are more than welcome on this show where sometimes we got to talk about, you know, KKK propaganda. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one of the rough ones. That's, that's season four's uh real rough one. Uh, but I, I will say, uh, um, I, I will say I was a, I'm a fan of your show. I found your show when a uh, friend of our show, Vice Victus was on. And what's interesting about it is that I am not the biggest action movie guy. Tom knows this, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on the DTV world or anything like that. So I figured, I would listen to the episode Vice was on, you know, support him. And then I found that I kept listening. Because uh, even if you're not a, a Scott Adkins obsessive, uh, I, I think that your show is so well done kind of walking you, walking people through the importance of these films uh, without being afraid to be critical sometimes when something doesn't quite pan out. Like, oh, God, what the hell was the zombie film I'm forgetting the name of now? Rekill. Rekill, thank you, yeah. I'm a big fan of your show. It's, it's a great show. And uh, yeah, it's a great when... Show. When we knew that Great Train Robbery was coming up, I just remember saying to Tom, like, this is the guy I want to get on for this. I think it would be so interesting to kind of have you on for what is technically not, but also kind of the very first action movie, right? And and how it evolves from this 13-minute thriller packing Nickelodeons to the kind of films that you talk about today. You know, that that fascinating over a century evolution, which is a lot of, you know, it, it's it's a, an interesting thing. And also, you know, if that doesn't count for anything, I, I'm pretty sure Scott Adkins fights somebody on a train in one of the ninja movies, right? One or two uh, subway in Ninja One. Yeah. Thank you. OK, yeah, I had a feeling you'd have that pull ready. So <laughs> so before we get uh, any further into the Great Train Robbery, let's talk about what the, the National Film Registry had to say about The Great Train Robbery. Considered the first narrative film, The Great Train Robbery was directed and photographed by Edwin S. Porter, a former cameraman for the Thomas Edison Company. Primitive by modern standards, the 10-minute action picture depicts 14 distinct scenes filmed at various locales in New Jersey intended to represent the American West. Broncho Billy Anderson, the screen's first Western star, played several roles in the film, including a bandit and a train passenger. Audiences were thrilled and terrified to watch a gunman in medium close-up fire directly at the screen in the film's final scene, although Porter suggested to exhibitors that it could just as easily be shown at the beginning of the film instead. So that's what the Library of Congress had to say uh, about the Great Train Robbery. Mike, had you seen The Great Train Robbery before? I had seen it years and years and years ago when I was in a film class. But I honestly, other than, I mean, obviously, you know, if you are at all a film fan, that last shot is is just so much in the kind of the cultural zeitgeist that, like, you remember that. But I hadn't 
I didn't remember anything else about it. So rewatching it was was kind of a, a fun experience to to see it again, you know, basically for the first time. Yeah, it's it's a uh, Tom and obviously I believe you and I had seen it uh together in oh, yeah. film school right yeah. yeah i mean that's one of the movies we saw in film school and i mean like mike it was kind of you know just a thing i uh, didn't really remember it i mean god i've I've watched 400 movies this year alone so <laughs> you know my mind's been wiped clean of 12 minute footage from 1903 that i saw like 15 years ago so yeah i mean it was nice and fresh and um uh yeah i mean we talk about rosetta stones in cinema a lot and this is pretty much the Rosetta Stone of all Rosetta Stones, you know? It's it's fascinating because I think that, um, you know, for this podcast in particular, what's kind of fun for us doing the National Film Registry as opposed to, like, an AFI list or anything is that if you were doing just a greatest films list or anything like that, you're only getting one type of movie. The Library of Congress, because of what they've inducted in the registry, we're going to be going as far back as stuff from 1894 and these one reelers of just blacksmiths hitting things. What I think is interesting about the Great Train Robbery uh, and its place in the registry in general is, I would venture to say it's perhaps the oldest movie that we're ever going to cover. That it stops being something we watch just for historical value, and there is actually real visceral entertainment still in it. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but for me, like watching it again, I wasn't just sitting back with a notepad going, ah, the historical. There are moments that are still fun to watch, despite this being well over a century old. Well, you know, it's it's fun to be like, oh, back in 1903, they knew they knew what people wanted. They just wanted they wanted action. They wanted fun. They wanted they wanted to see bad guys doing bad things and then getting their comeuppance. You know, I, I was I was going to tweet this, but I figured whatever, I'll make the joke on the show. But it's like I'm I'm trying to imagine people today watching you know this short in college and being like, "Excuse me, you want me to uh, sympathize with these train robbers? Uh, that's pretty problematic, guys." Um, but yeah, I mean, like back, like, what what did I see? And the guys that did this were like, "Yeah, people want." this pulp shit they want guns and they want robberies and they want exciting shit like what what are we gonna do a gritty neorealistic movie about how like we still don't know how to do medicine and we're like drilling into people's (laughs) heads if they have too many headaches like no they're they're making they're making fun shit it's interesting you say that so that that brings us to uh edwin s porter who is the the filmmaker behind this Obviously, he's not known as a director because at the time they were called producers rather than directors was the term for the kind of the visionary on this. But Edwin S. Porter actually got his start working for a, a museum in New York. Uh, it was like an attractions place. We used to have a lot of places that were halls of amusement in a way. We called them museums, but they were really kind of like... Uh, play you know amusement halls right where they would have wax figures and grotesqueries and things like that porter worked for a place called the eden musee which was an amusement center and wax museum uh, on 23rd street here in new york if you guys are wondering exactly where if you're a new yorker uh it's the pc richards and sons on 23rd street used to be uh one of the most important locations in cinema history that's how we treat our history here in new york uh anyway uh, Porter worked for the Eden Musée, and he would screen newsreel footage uh, for people that were just, you know, in the late 1800s, 
films were just documentary footage, right? They were just non-narrative, like, footage of things happening. And what Porter noticed was that the war footage, footage built uh, around the Spanish-American War, was what gripped people the most. And seeing the crowd's reaction to footage of, of war scenes more so than watching, I don't know, uh, somebody feed a cat, influenced his idea of what he was going of, of what he would eventually produce in his own films the understanding of this is what the audience is responding to and he started out when he started working for Hearst and then Edison he started out making films that were reenactments of historical events that contained a bit of of viscerality right he showed a you know a couple oh god the the Bunding Brothers, I believe it is. Uh, it was basically a, a short recreation of a posse killing a bunch of robbers. Him and Edison, Edison, who was essentially the the original exploitation filmmaker in a way. You know, Edison was the one who sent. Here's a here's an interesting one. Edison sent Edwin S. Porter to the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo to film President McKinley. Porter unknowingly was filming McKinley the day before McKinley would be shot. Uh, so Edison told him, go film the funeral. And their footage of Bill McKinley's funeral broke box office records and became the biggest hit film of its year. As a result, to try and capitalize on that, Edison then demanded they film a recreation of the assassin, of the execution of McKinley's assassination, Leon Cholgash, sold that as the real thing. And again, another massive hit. So Edison was very much about trying to give the audience what they wanted. Porter while doing that, seemed interested in expanding the medium and trying to create something a little more artistic than just visceral thrills, which that combination, I think, is what ultimately results in the movie we're here to talk about today. Yeah, you know, it's not dissimilar from what guys like Sergei Eisenstein or even Frank Capra were doing later when they were, you know, recruited to make propaganda stuff for their respective nations. And while it was propaganda, they still managed to make pretty staggeringly amazing, you know, pieces of cinema uh, on top of that. It's always, I mean, it's it's just, it's funny. This is a perfect example of that whole art commerce thing that we're still dealing with today, right? And still dealing with sensationalized things and audiences want, you know, real life footage of executions and stuff like that. And then you have, but you need an artist kind of to make that. So they end up, still ultimately trying to do something with it that goes beyond just that sort of salaciousness and and that need to feed the lowest common denominator it's it's interesting too you're 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 right and porter actually we don't know much about porter's life before his work at the eden musee but i was able to find an interesting quote from him after great train robbery a little after that he was tasked because the film industry was so big uh, Porter was tasked with turning out a 15-minute film every three days. And Porter is quoted as saying, The bane of the producer, which we got to remember in this time means director, the bane of the producer is the rule requiring the turning loose of so many reels of film per week, regardless entirely of surrounding circumstances. We must allow sufficient time to do those things which should be done and avoid those things which should not be done. So even back in the early 1900s, you are already having conflicts between the filmmaker and the studio about uh, about quantity versus quality. 
already all the way back then. And uh, filming time, which is yeah. still to this day a problem. Get, getting worse th- these days. If you talk to anybody who works in B movies, it's basically every producer's like, "Well, you made your last movie for uh, five hundred grand. What do we? What if we did it for three hundred grand this time? And instead of fourteen days, you have ten days." And you go, well, just shoot me in the head then, because that's just not going to be easy at all. And it's going to look like crap. But, you know, things don't change. Everything's times a flat circle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, that's that is in my wheelhouse. Uh, and I can tell you, having talked to Scott and talked to some other, you know, DTV folks, they've made entire action movies in less time than Jackie Chan took to film the last fight in Drunken Master 2. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's absolutely insane. The timetables that people are, are dealing with, you know, you're turning around full length features with, like you said, Tom, 10 to 14 days shooting time. You're doing, you're trying, if you're in action to do sort of, at least if you're good at it, like Scott or Michael Jai White, you're trying to do some fairly high level martial arts and, and fight scenes. And where normally you might have had a week or two to shoot those scenes, you're now trying to shoot them in a day or two. Uh, and it's it's absolutely unreal. But it just is, this is just a perfect example of the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Like the film industry hasn't actually evolved all that much since 1990. No, no. It, it, it all started with the separation of powers between the guys with money who don't know a fucking thing about making movies because they don't go to the set and then they just get the film and go, well, that must have been easy. Let's, why don't you do it again, but shorter if it was that easy. And then you have, you know, filmmakers losing their goddamn minds because it's, it wasn't easy. Give us more time, please. Well, that's, I mean, that's Thomas Edison to a T. Edison, I mean, his name is on all these films, but he wasn't, he wasn't involved in the filmmaking process. He just had the facilities and yeah. he had the patents. I was looking into this because, you know, yesterday when I knew we had this episode coming, I was doing my research and I was looking into, you know, this film and how it got made and where it was made. Uh, And I saw that it was in Essex County, uh, New Jersey. So I decided on a whim. uh, I actually drove out uh, to Jersey. We're in New York. So it was about an hour and a half drive. And I went to the park where they filmed the exteriors and the train tracks where they filmed the train sequences. And most interesting, um, you can go uh, to West Orange, New Jersey, and you can actually see they have a replica of the Black Mariah Studio, which was Edison's film studio, uh, which is a tiny thing. It, I mean, it's it's about the size of maybe like a small house where the this is the original film studio. And, uh, you know, why it's called Black Mariah for some reason is because they said it looked like a police paddy wagon that doesn't explain the name anymore it's something that's kind of lost in translation a bit you look at it and you kind of just realize like right for edison he essentially had this compound built this small black box on there hired william dixon and then later edwin s porter and kind of just went go into that box here's some money here's some cameras here's some films make stuff that will that will give me money. And that was it. And initially there was seemingly minimal oversight. And then once the money started rolling in, and once these things became more and more profitable, all of a sudden you start to see Edison upping the mandates and and giving them less and expecting more. 
and it's just immediate like it's exactly what we see now it's the same thing tell me thomas edison was a piece of shit who <laughs> liked to take credit for things he didn't really do and uh took advantage of every loophole he could and tried to you know get a copyright on every movie ever made because he invented the uh the camera yeah like, well i was gonna say asshole. do you know mike do you know about william dixon and, and thomas edison's sort of rivalry yeah i do know a little bit about it yeah yeah, that's that is essentially where for our listeners, that's essentially where the Great Train Robbery kind of springs out of the fact that Edison was forced to innovate because for a while his rivals were Biograph, which was uh, William Dixon had left Edison and formed Biograph. Our listeners from last season might remember Biograph is where D.W. Griffith got to start. In order to stop Biograph from making 35 millimeter films, Edison claimed that he had a patent on all the equipment, which shut Biograph you know, or shut Biograph out and forced them to make 69 millimeter films until 1902 when a patent lawsuit took Biograph's side, which meant that Edison now had to innovate in new ways, allowing Edwin S. Porter to experiment with this crazy idea that he had that never caught on of what if you uh, had narrative scenes in sequence to tell a story. Which, you know, could you imagine, fellas, if that had caught on at all? <laughs> who, 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 who could have ever seen that? It's not like it would have uh, d taken over all of our lives in annoying <laughs> ways. The thing that I find so just fascinating and depressing about this is it's pretty clear, you know, Edison viewed these movies as, well, they were advertisements, right? They mm -hmm. were advertisements for him to sell his shit. They, and it's just so depressing how that has just never changed, right? That the studios <laughs> no. view movies as they're, they're the ads for their secondary revenue streams, basically. Everything is, you know, my wife and I have a, a long running joke how I am completely impervious to advertisements, like advertisements on TV shows, you know, commercial breaks, stuff like that. Completely impervious. They don't phase me at all. Product placement. Nope. I am fucking powerless against <laughs> like if I see some character in a movie wearing like a cool pair of shoes, like I got to go buy those shoes. But like I own like seven pairs of Vans because Paul Walker wears them in the Fast and Furious movies. Like I am powerless <laughs> against product placement. And what? you can just see even back then that was the way the producer, the, the, the money people viewed these movies. I mean, if you're talking about being a, a slave to product placement. Mike, let me introduce you to Mike. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm susceptible to all of that. I love it. I embrace it fully. Uh, you know, I am, I am, uh... You should ask us to send you the audio file of me yelling at Mike and Kyle about how they need to go get the Travis Scott McDonald's burger. <laughs> well, now they're... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, but I, you know... And and Mike, you know, to your point about buying things you saw in movies, that's why I believe you ordered the exact bandana that the bandit who shoots the camera at the end wears, right? Yep, I'm you waiting for it to get here. It's not here yet, but I'm I'm waiting for it. Uh, <laughs> it's a, you know sometimes you got to go on an eBay hunt to find that stuff, but I did it. Well, well, thank God bandanas are back in style again. I mean, if there's one benefit of the last eighteen months, it's we could all look like old school cowboys while we go into banks, and this time nobody cares that we're wearing bandanas. <laughs> but I think it's it's interesting you're talking about Edison and that. I mean, even if you guys watch uh, the execution of Leon Cholgash film that they made, before they put Cholgash in the electric chair, they make sure to show you that they tested the electric chair using Edison light bulbs, uh, which is just so fun. <laughs> that Edison's like, well, this is good enough to kill a man. Keep it in your home. 
It's interesting, though, that you say that because one of the things Porter, you talk about, you know, uh, disreputable business practices. Uh, we didn't uh, have real rules about copyright in the early 1900s, right? So the reason that Porter really shifts his approach to film and discovers new filmmaking techniques is, uh, as you all may recall, in, uh, in 1902, George Méliès makes a little film called A Trip to the Moon, which we've all seen the iconic image of the rocket ship going into the moon's eye. Uh, it's an incredible work of early science fiction. Uh, Edison had Porter making pirated copies of the film to distribute. So he just had Porter pirating the movie. And Porter observed it and was inspired by its use of continuity of image and the idea of that you could show the exterior of something from one angle and then the interior from another angle. And peop the audience would understand what that meant. Uh, which sounds very obvious now, but at the time that was pretty cool and pretty pretty wild because you got to remember a lot of early films, you know, for our listeners, a lot of the early films that precede this are just a camera set up on a tripod filming one thing happening in one take. Uh, but from Melies, Porter discovered some of these ideas like interior next year, continuity of images, and even match cuts. He would incorporate those into his films and, and people were so impressed. Uh, if you watch, he had an early short called Appointment by Telephone. It's a three-scene short that's just about a guy cheating on his wife and getting caught because early 1900s. But the big revolutionary thing is that he shows you a man standing in front of this restaurant and then the next shot is him inside of it and you're watching people walk past the window from the other angle and people understood that. So then he does The Life of an American Fireman, which incorporates match cuts where he'll show you the fireman swinging a pickaxe at a window, but he doesn't show it making contact until he cuts to the opposite angle. And all of these little things he's experimenting with all come into play when he decides he is going to make a film uh, about, based on an old, I believe it's Butch Cassidy robbery. I may be mistaken on that, but I believe it's, it's uh, based on a Butch Cassidy train heist which is, of course, The Great Train Robbery. And in this, you see one of the big things with this film, which we can talk about, is the fact that it cuts between so many different moments in time. Uh, it cuts between, you know, the, the robbers on the train, the man in the station house, people having a hoedown. It cuts between all of them, and it never uses title cards to tell you where it is. There are no title cards besides the beginning of the movie, which I think is is radical for for a narrative especially because so many silent films after that don't trust the audience enough and even movies now don't trust the audience enough to figure something out it was really interesting for me that that in terms of the editing you know the the thing i noticed that made it feel the sort of the most 1903 was the the utter lack of camera movement but the editing didn't radiate like old silent film at all it felt fairly modern in terms of what you're talking about the way it was cutting back and forth between different you know different scenes and and allowing us to just go with it and understand what was happening and, he, and even if there's something you know the hoedown for instance i was a little bit like i'm i'm guessing these guys are gonna be the posse but i'm not but then you know as soon as the the station house manager comes in and tells them what happens it's like oh okay great i know you know, the time sort of the timeline collapses into itself and you know exactly where you are and what placement you're at. 
uh, I was actually, I don't want to say I was surprised because that feels like I'm talking down to the movie. I'm not at all, but I was, I was pleased to see just kind of how modern the editing in this one felt. Yeah, no, we, 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 we do kind of deal with that a lot. Like I, I always say, you know, I, I try to be as open-minded with all the movies as I can. Cause I always get surprised, especially like you say, with the editing or with this, or one thing that really surprised me was the violence. I mean, the guy getting his head caved in and thrown off a train kind of took <laughs> me by surprise. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we just, I feel like no matter how hard we try and how much we consume, we're always just gonna have this idea of older movies as rickety or not as well conceived or whatever it is or have the content that's adult or whatever and then you watch it and you go well no they like i said rosetta stone this this shit had to come from somewhere and you know the the editing yeah like the editing really was i mean i watched this shit and i feel like this is kind of like i said rosetta stone the the inkling the seedling for um i mean the entirety of michael mann's career basically I mean, it's about the process of the robbery and then that cross cutting between the gang and the posse is, I mean, that's, that's public enemies. That's heat. Like it has to come somewhere and Michael Mann might not even say, oh, it was a great train robbery, but this all felt modern, man. Cops and robbers, people have been doing cops and robbers since the beginning. Well, I mean, Scorsese straight up references this movie in Goodfellas. And as oh, yeah. he said, oh, yeah. it was a major influence on Goodfellas for him. Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like maybe I'm reaching, but the posse dancing scene felt like the dancing scene at the wedding in Wolf of Wall Street. That, yeah. I mean, yeah. just the way it's kind of shot straight on of just them dancing. And it's like a comedic scene until it's not, you know, which is the Wolf of Wall Street to a T. But yeah. like, I felt like, oh, he, he just straight up took another thing from the Great Train Robbery. Well, but, and also, yeah. you know, to bring it back to Goodfellas, there's something about just like... The way that it and and Bonnie and Clyde too. I mean, there's something about the way that this film is content to make. I mean, everybody is sort of faceless in it to some degree or another. But one of the things I think is so impressive about the film is you can get so invested in the action, despite this movie not doing what even film school would teach you to do, which is like introduce the audience to the characters. None of these people have names. We don't know anything about what their interests are outside of. We don't know why the guys are robbing the train. Nobody's got a sick kid at home. We don't know who the people are at the dance, per se. And yet we're still invested in watching what happens to them. There's a real minimalism to the storytelling in this that I think makes it more effective than so many of the films that come along later that try well, and do the same thing. But yeah, Because, you know, simplicity is sometimes the most complex thing you can do. I mean, this thing just runs, I mean, this thing just starts. I mean, it's 12 minutes and we say like, oh, it just starts. But like that, they could have spent like two or three minutes getting us to know the the train station manager or whatever, or giving us a little bit on the leader of the gang. But it's just, no, you know what this is. These are bad guys. They rob trains. They're robbing a train. And now they're going to get shot. I mean, it's just simple, elemental. It's all about the execution of the story, which again, feels like something that, uh, some movies do understand these days. Sometimes some movies could learn that lesson where it's really not about the story you're telling, but it's how you tell the story. Again, 1903, they figured that shit out. It's simple, but it's told well. Yeah, I mean, us, you know, action fans like me, we're always talking about pure action movies, right? Like we want, a, yeah. we want that pure action movie, that movie that's almost, it's just one notch above like a demo reel, right? For a stunt yeah. team. 
This is a demo reel for a fucking stunt team, man. This is as pure of an action movie as you can possibly get. Porter shoots everything. There's no close-ups until the very end, which I thought was fascinating. So because of the film quality and everything, you can't even really tell who these people are. You can tell those are the good guys, those are the bad guys, those are the victims. But it's all just pure kinetic action. And it's really kinetic. I was really impressed. You know, Tom, you mentioned the violence. And, and and especially, yeah, that dude getting his head beat in and then thrown off the train. I was like, damn, <laughs> this movie's not yeah. fucking around here. Um, but also just the shootouts and everything, you know, everything, even though the camera isn't moving, which is, you know, something that we'd be expecting to see now, everything within the frame is constantly moving. There is no moment of stillness anywhere in this movie. It is It is very kinetic. It's very visceral. And it's very clear that what Porter was really focused on was the action. He wanted to shoot action in a way that that very likely hadn't been done before. I mean, honestly, watching this movie, you know, I know it's kind of called it's not technically correct. Like you said, Mike, the first action movie. But, man, Edwin Porter might be the first action director of all time, because this is some seriously, you know, Michael Mann to go to my DTV route, some serious John Hyams, Isaac Florentine shit that he's doing here. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. It, you know, it, I was just, I was really stunned at how much motion there was in this. Yes, it's technically not the first action movie or the first anything, but what I think is so interesting about that and that element of it is technically, and I'm using air quotes here, you know, technically the first action movie could be uh, attributed to The Burglars from 1897 by Alice Guy Blanche, which. I, you know, is is cool enough a woman directed possibly the first action film. Uh, but the first Western is arguably uh, the British film Kidnapping by Indians from 1899. And the first crime film is arguably Chinese Laundry Scene from 1894. But in the case of all three of those, they are essentially two minutes, one camera on a tripod, filming one scene, adaptations of vaudeville routines you know chinese laundry scene is just a guy doing an acrobatics trick the burglars is people running across fake rooftops kidnapping by indians speaks to itself and the thing is you watch all three of those and they're just a camera capturing stunts that happen to have a setting and you're right when you talk about porter as the first action director because to me those other films that are called the first action movie or the first crime movie or the first Western movie, or whatever, aren't. They're just scenes. They're just a single image with a, with a costume thrown on it. This is an action movie. This is a crime movie because it's a narrative and a story and, and, and it's, it's calibrated in such a way to, to elicit certain emotions from the audience. Well, it's, you know, we, we talked about this on the, um, uh, we talked about this last year. I mean, we talked about this a lot, but it's that sometimes the first movie, you know, the movie that's credited as being the first, you know, we credit Birth of a Nation as the first, like, blockbuster, but it actually isn't. Other movies did these things before it, but it's really the case of the first movie to take all of those ideas and put it into a package that works. This took all of those ideas that came before it, added a little spice of its own, and made the first action movie because. It's the first action movie that works. It does the thing that action movies need to do, which isn't just having stunts. It's having 
action dictate character. We may not know these guys, but by their actions, we know these robbers are vicious. They're not going to take any shit. And we, we know them more than if they spent time telling us about the life with fucking typhoid and, you know, sweating to death in a little fucking shack in the woods. Like, no, these guys, these guys will kill. They kill three innocent people in this movie, all done through action. We see how easily they get on the train, how they move and all that stuff. It's not the first, but it's the first to put it all in a package. I mean, and I also, I go back to this quote a lot, I think of, and it's about a very different genre, but I remember watching a, a documentary about the, the history of the Broadway musical and Harvey Firestein was on there talking about Le Cage a Faux, the, the big sensational musical. And he made a point that I always think of, you know, people get it wrong. Le Cage a Faux wasn't the first gay musical. It was the first gay musical to make money. And I always think of that when we talk about what movies are the first or anything like that, which is, was The Great Train Robbery technically the first action film or the first crime film? Maybe not, but it was the first to make money. It was a massive hit. It was, you know, it was culturally dominant. And when you think about the fact that maybe we could point to a different film that screened in a couple Nickelodeons or proto-Nickelodeons and say, well, that was technically the first action film. But if you think about how many of the early filmmakers saw The Great Train Robbery in their youth, in their infancy, and were inspired by it. I mean, everybody from John Ford to, quite literally, because he was invoked before, Walt Disney saw this film. I mean, Walt Disney, I believe, had it playing in the Main Street Cinema uh, back in the early days of Disneyland. Like, saw this movie and went, yeah, this is this is what a movie is. Like, this is what I'm trying to emulate. It's it it is the it is one of those films that you look at and realize kind of uh, launched a thousand artists because of what it did. Well, I mean, it's to bring it to something, uh, you know, in our lifetimes, it's the Blair Witch Project. Mm -hmm. There was there were found footage movies before the Blair Witch Project. There was literally a found footage movie that wasn't too dissimilar from the Blair Witch Project released before the Blair Witch Project a year, you know, a year before a movie called The Last Broadcast. But Blair Witch Project is the one that came together, had the package that just hooked everybody, made money, and then all of a sudden found footage is now a thing and not just sometimes a movie comes out that looks like it's shot like a documentary or someone found this tape. You know, nobody was really copying other than the Italians because that's what the Italians do. <laughs> Cannibal Holocaust even though Cannibal Holocaust is more of a found footage, was a found footage movie 20 years before uh, Blair Witch. I mean, it's it's just that thing, that elemental alchemy that is movies where just because you're the first to do it doesn't mean you're the first to do it right or the first to do it that connects in a big way. I mean, that's the sad and simple truth of this shit. You know, sometimes you got to be in the right place at the right time, too. And I, I think another element here with that, uh, and I, I want to hear you guys, both of you guys' thoughts on this, this element that one thing that has kind of been lost to time, is that part of what makes Great Train Robbery so powerful uh, is because it's a sequential narrative and scenes need to go in a certain order to convey the story, more control is in the hands of the producers and the studio making it rather than the exhibitors, because one thing we forget is how much control the exhibitors had over how a film was seen. I mean, think about the fact that uh, earlier in 1903, uh, I have this here, that Edwin Porter adapted Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was a hugely popular novel in America at the time. And there's a boat race scene that 
would either get placed as scene five, where it made sense in the narrative, or scene 10, where it made no sense in the narrative, but just was more uh, viscerally entertaining to the audience. Exhibitors were chopping up films and kind of like just putting things where they wanted to put them, clipping reels together however they wanted. Some exhibitors were hand-tinting films. Others were adding their own sound effects behind the screen. The exhibitors kind of had free reign to do with this stuff whatever they wanted. And in the case of Great Train Robbery, as we, you know, as was noted, the scene that we all think of as the famous ending scene of the, the mid-close-up and the guy shooting at the, the camera, some exhibitors were putting at the front. But I do think there's an element to Great Train Robbery because Porter had more control over the narrative and could kind of do it his way. I think this film was able to have more of an impact because it took control out of the exhibitor's hands. A thing we forget about film is that how you watch it absolutely affects how you perceive the movie itself if you're watching uh, you know the same movie that somebody saw in the cinema and thought was incredible if you're watching it on your tv with motion smoothing and the brightness decrease and everything you could say it looks terrible but it's really the method of presentation or if you're watching a movie at home you're a goddamn heathen who deserves to be taken out back and shot <laughs> uh, thank you film twitter we're glad you weighed in here <laughs> i don't know i mean I don't know, Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? Because I'm kind of trying to formulate my thoughts about this, too. Yeah, no, because actually, perfect example. So I watched this twice. First time I watched it, I just, I found just a version on YouTube. Uh, and it had a completely different color palette. So whatever print they were using was obviously, uh, had been tinted at some point. And it had your standard silent movie public domain backing. I mean, In the Hall of the Mountain King was used <laughs> for a lot of it. You know, because again, a lot of these silent movies, it was up to the exhibitors to decide whatever music they would, because they had a live person playing the piano there. And so it was just up to them. You know, a lot of these movies, they don't have actual scores. They're just whatever music they wanted to play. But then I watched it on the Library of Congress YouTube channel, which they do have an official YouTube channel. It has no backing music whatsoever, and it's properly tinted. It's properly colored. It's not sepia-toned. It's, it's true black and white. And I will tell you, not having music kind of radically altered how this movie plays. It plays a hell of a lot nastier mm -hmm. if you're just watching it in silence. Like, it is so much meaner. If you're just sitting there watching it in silence, then kind of getting distracted by maybe some incongruous music. Um, so it definitely matters because how an exhibitor chose to play these movies, yeah, would radically alter your feelings on on what you thought of the movie. I agree with all that stuff. I, I mean, you, you even like, look, I'm going to you know a film festival in, in a few weeks and just how you like if you're watching movies in a row, how you program them can affect how you watch something. And yeah, I mean, uh, the music is a big effect. I mean, John Carpenter talks all the time about Halloween and how the movie just kind of really didn't work until he put the, the music in it. And, uh, you know, th there's this whole history of just distributors and, uh, you know, the, the movie theaters themselves just cutting movies out and doing whatever they wanted to them because that's just what they did. They had their audience or they had their own fucking weird morality about stuff. I mean, there's all the sorts of stories about these guys cutting out the nude scenes out of movies, not, you know, either because of morality reasons or because, you know, they were sex pests on 42nd Street, keeping them for themselves. Uh, I just think all that stuff is so interesting because, uh, you know, for, for another example, I was listening to a podcast where they were talking about the original Godzilla vs. Kong from the 60s. 
and they started talking about, oh, it was really cool how they had this format where, um, you know, they had newspaper news, uh, reports telling you the story. And I was listening to that going, oh, you watched the American version because that's not, that's not the Japanese original version. You guys watched it. Uh, on TV when you grew up, or maybe in this case, you guys got the Criterion set and didn't realize the disc is the American one. You have to go to the special features disc to get the uh, uh, the Japanese cut. And for a lot of people, that version is their preferred version of Godzilla vs. Kong from the 60s. For others like me, it's not my preferred version. I think it's not great. But it's interesting how these little, just little things like that, can really just fucking affect the hell out of out of things. I mean, you know, shit, Michael Mann keeps editing his movies. Well, I can give a real-world example of something I think is crazy that reminded me, I when I was reading about, you know, uh, taking the gunshot scene and putting it at the beginning of the end, I thought of this. Um, uh, as Tom knows and, and Michael tell you, I used to work at a, we both used to work at a movie theater in, in Brooklyn that was doing, it would do a lot of rep screenings. And they, one night, uh, we were screening The Fugitive. One oh, of the God, yep. quintessential action films of the '90s, right? And now, Mike, when when you think of the Fugitive, what's the first scene that jumps to mind? Uh, well, it's uh, I didn't kill my wife. I don't right. Care. So imagine you paid money to go to a rep screening that was screening this on 35 millimeter from a print that had been borrowed from the Motion Picture Academy, and you're sitting, and you know that scene's about to happen, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, it cuts to the next scene. I'd be hopping mad. Right. Oh man, I'd be hopping mad. Everybody was. So I'm I'm only using this as the example. So what had happened was it had become clear that whether the print arrived too late or nobody had tested it, um, the print that we had borrowed from the Motion Picture Academy was one from which they had extracted scenes to use during the ceremony. One of which being the I didn't kill my wife scene. So instead an offer was made to the audience as a compromise, which was, we can either refund you, or you can watch the rest of the movie on 35mm, and then at the end, after the credits, we'll pull up that scene on YouTube and play it. <laughs> sure enough, a good chunk of the people stayed for that. And I just thought of that, like, how funny it is to me, like, imagining, like, right, that's kind of what it was like to go see these movies back in the day when the exhibitor had more control. It was an accident for us, but somebody at the Eden Musee or at one of these old-time exhibition halls could just turn around and go, ah, that waterfall, that, that whole, like, you know, that I didn't kill my wife, I don't care scene, that's really exciting. That shouldn't be in the middle. That should be at the end. And they would just chop it up and chuck it at the end. That was what it was like. The Huber's Museum, which is the first place to screen the Great Train Robbery, which, again, for our New York uh, friends, if you're wondering where the Huber's Museum was, the very first place that screened the Great Train Robbery, a dime museum on 42nd Street. The address doesn't exist anymore, but it's somewhere between Madame Tussauds and Ripley's, believe it or not. But anyway, like that could chop it up and just present it however they wanted. I, I, and just to put it in like a modern context, just imagining that fugitive scene now thrown at the end because some exhibitor decided, why the hell not? Well, I, I was also saying, it, it, you skip, you, there's, there's a bit skipping because everyone knew something was wrong immediately because at the beginning of the movie when the train escape doesn't show up, yes, people right, went, yeah. oh no, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. But also just because I'm reading the J.W. Rinsler making of, I just read the, that making of Star Wars book, 
you know, and this is a thing I've I've talked to directors great, about too. Great fucking book, by the way. Oh, it's great amazing. Book. The if you guys haven't read that book, I just got it after the man passed because I kept waiting to get him. Um, I got most of, if not all, of his making of books. Star Wars is great. I'm halfway through Planet of the Apes, another one that's amazing. But a thing that George Lucas says, and I've talked to other filmmakers about, is that uh, as a way to kind of make sure at least the studio doesn't mangle their movie and edit, they will make sure that the studio can't get uh either they don't shoot coverage so all they have is what they want it to be edited like or they just make sure the studio doesn't get a hold of uh the film until like two weeks before the movie's supposed to air so not giving them any time to edit the movie in some brain dead accountant's way they think is going to make them more money you know so uh it feels like even since 1903 you know, kind of, again, they kind of knew, all right, let's kind of just shoot it in a way where they can't fuck this up too much. Yeah, it's, it's, it's truly fascinating. Now, one thing I want to note too, uh, about this film and, and how it holds up that I thought of, we were talking about the, uh, earlier films. So how the first crime film is arguably Chinese laundry scene and how the earliest Western is arguably kidnapping by Indians. If you watch Kidnapping by Indians or Chinese Laundry Scene, as you can imagine, there's some prominent elements of that that are very uncomfortable, right? It's it's a thing that you kind of look at and you try and say, oh, it's a product of its time or whatever, but obviously there's some horrible racist caricatures in those. One thing I'll say to the credit of Great Train Robbery, nothing like that. No. A 1903 action film that there is absolutely nothing that you look at and go... That's objectionable. Unless I'm, I'm sure somebody. Them, you know. No, I mean I'm sure somebody today could kind of, uh, you know, go take, make some take uh, qualms with the, uh, uh, it, you know. Well, take take qualms with the 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 posse killing the bad guys at the end and say, well, this movie doesn't realize that all cops are bastards. <laughs> but like, truly, like, think about the fact that you've got just the the fact that this movie is from 1903, but you could still screen it to somebody today, and it would still have all of the power that it had when it played. There's nothing about it that. I think particularly yeah. ages it. And I thought that was an no. interesting element, you know? The only thing that ages it, I think, and, and not in that way, because I agree with you, there's nothing like sort of morally or ethically objectionable about this movie, is just some of the death scenes, you know, because they're still coming from that stage tradition. Mm -hmm. I do yeah. feel like some of the death scenes are a little over the top. Like there's one guy that gets shot and then uh, he gets shot in the train and he kind of does like a little puts his arms up and does like a little pirouette before he falls down. Yeah. Uh, but that that again, so much of that is just because of the stage tradition that it comes from. But in terms of, yeah, I mean, it's honestly one of the most morally unobjectionable movies from before 1920 that I've ever seen in my life, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, just another thing that kind of um, makes it feel kind of timeless uh, in spite of the pirouette gunshot victims is you know for the longest time you couldn't in movies show in the same frame a gun going off and someone reacting to getting shot you know it would have to be close up of the gun it fires and then a close up of a guy clutching his chest and falling down not here i mean this is all just in frame gun goes off guy goes down and uh i forget when the rule might have started going into play probably in the 20s maybe early 30s when you couldn't do shit like that so a lot of time bogart's shooting people not in the same frame with them uh that shit doesn't come back till 69 when peck and Paw just blew everything off with the wild bunch which again you could see a direct uh 
a direct line between Great Train Robbery and the the Wild oh. Bunch, not just in the violence, but just a story about bad guys getting their come up at the end in the Wild West. Another thing about, you know, talk about the shooting, and this is something I want to hear you guys' thoughts on, that I thought was interesting, and it's a thing that I feel like we don't see in movies today, and I kind of wish we did. Outside the train, they've lined everybody up, they're taking their stuff, and one guy, if you remember, they, they, they shoot the one man, and he, and he hits the ground, right? He clutches his chest, he hits the ground, and the bandits have got them all stuck up, and then the bandits take off, and then the crowd runs to the man who's been shot, and wants to, you know, yeah. try and help make sure he's okay. I feel like when you watch movies now, uh, and like even going back further, you know, for, for decades since, if somebody gets shot, unless they're our main character, if somebody gets shot, no matter where they get shot, everyone else around just assumes, well, that's it for them. Let's ignore the corpse. And I, I love that little element of like, even though this guy has been shot and he's been on the ground for a couple of minutes, the group still runs over to him as soon as the band has gone to try and figure out how to help him. And there's a real sense of desperation in that that I think adds to the stakes of it. You're not just watching, by having them run over to that man, you're not just watching, you know, uh, sentient objects being robbed. You're watching people. And there's still an emotion to that, even though we don't know who that is that just got shot. We don't know how the people feel about him. There's just a humanity to it. Well, it, it it adds the realism to the story. I mean, because it's 12 minutes long, there's no dialogue. It has to be just pure and elemental. And it it's doing what, you know, I said about the violence of the robbers before. It's it's character through action. We get to know that these people, uh, we may not know the specifics of them, but they're not the robbers. They're the good guys. They have a morality to them that the robbers don't. It, it gives us the difference between the two. And Old I mean... That's the shit we get. We were taught in film school when we were making silent films. Yes, Mike, you have. Sorry, yeah. Although I was going to say, I also think it's fascinating that the robbers do, again, being told through action, do have a at least some sense of a morality because they are not just wantonly killing people in this movie, yeah. right? They don't kill the station manager at the start of it. They tie him yeah. up. They knock him out. You know, their preference is to knock people out and tie them up. They only kill people and they will you're right they will violently and without remorse kill people when they need to but they do for the movie really try and avoid killing as many people as they can which again i think to be able to convey that in 12 minutes is astounding to well me. it's that again it's that michael mann connection of like the beginning of heat they don't want to kill these guys but then Ah, uh, well, fuck, we gotta kill them now. Uh, it's a little more vicious in this one, but yeah, it's, it's, it's the car, it's building the character through action, which, you know, a lot of action movies these days don't really take into account when they do that, but 1903, these fucking guys did, and, you know, it's why it's important, it's why it's in the, the registry, and why it's still, you know, frankly, watchable today. I mean, you're not gonna confuse it with the next Gareth Evans picture, but, it's watchable and it's entertaining and it's just like again that Rosetta Stone thing of like shooting you back in time and then like getting through all of the like just the tendrils it's spread out throughout cinema history where you just start like like Doctor Strange flying through the universe you're just like okay I see I get why this is so important you know another thing we didn't touch on that I want to talk about with this is the art direction in this film you know, Mike, you made a great point about how there's always some kind of movement on screen. But another element I think is great is normally when you watch the older films that precede this, even the Georges Méliès films, which I which I love, you know, 
they they're very obviously in front of painted backdrops and especially the earlier Edison films there's not a lot of effort in terms of the art direction except for some of Porter's prior films you know it's typically just like a small flat and it's like we know what we're here to see what i love about this film especially when you go to the the station manager's office there's so many different things on the wall there's so much detail put into this that your eye is always occupied by something even if we're in a situation where the station manager's tied up and trying to just like you know wriggle himself out and get help you're there's always something to occupy your eye it, there's never a boring frame of this movie no you know there's nothing that's visually dull uh, it's uh you know a lesson that the late great tony scott took in his last movie unstoppable if we're on a train trains are nothing but constant kinetic movement cinematically get that across by constantly moving having the camera moving having people moving just the kinetic energy bring it make the audience feel the same way that the characters feel and again that connection and yeah this movie does it really well it's just always you just feel like the movie's just shot out of a gun right from the beginning and it doesn't stop until uh the camera's turned back on you and that guy's firing right into your face that's yeah can we talk about that i mean does anybody else have anything to say before we talk about that shot and like that scene the only thing i wanted to add on what you said about the art direction mike is yeah this movie feels really lived in like it feels like in the best way it's a world that exists outside of this movie uh and we're just kind of dropping in uh and that that is you know especially turn of the century when literally they were in a lot of ways just kind of replicating stage plays to have a movie that feels like it exists in the real world and feels that lived in and all of that is through the set design the art direction all of that sort of stuff it's that's no small feat in 1903 man uh but yeah other than that let's yeah let's talk about that last shot well first off if you haven't watched this film and you're listening to the episode go watch it it will take you 13 minutes we've talked about it for five times yeah. longer than it takes <laughs> to watch the movie <laughs> go go on youtube hell we'll put it on our youtube page you can find it anywhere watch it but of course the scene we're referring to is this incredible shot of an actor, Justice D. Barnes is the name of the actor, who would act for a number of years and then retire and become, I believe, a milkman upstate. So imagine uh, the man from arguably the most famous scene in cinema just delivering your milk. Justice D. Barnes looking directly at the camera, firing off some shots from his revolver, which uh, Porter, notably, he didn't love close-ups. He felt you should only, or he, he didn't want to overuse them. He felt you should only use them in special occasions because it would be jarring for the audience. And this is certainly a jarring scene. Arguably, Barnes shooting the camera, I would say, is maybe the first jump scare in cinema. Because it is just such a, a shocking image. So I, I just want to hear in general... Uh, we'll start with Mike and then tell like, what are your guys' thoughts on just that shot and that scene? What does it mean to you and how do you feel about it? You know, putting yourself in the context of 1903, it's it's tremendous, right? Like, it just had to have scared. I mean, we're talking, I know I know it's an urban legend that the, the, the train arriving at the station made people, you know, freak out and flee and stuff. But I got to imagine in 1903, watching a dude point a gun at you and pull the trigger would be pretty unnerving. Honestly, it's a little unnerving now because it's still not a shot that we see replicated a lot, right? Even modern cinema, you very rarely see somebody fire directly into the camera. 
uh, because I don't know about you guys, but staring down the barrel of a gun is not a very comfortable position for me to be in. And so <laughs> speak for yourself. Um, <laughs> and so I, I, I still think it has a lot of impact. Um, yeah. The the way, and especially the way Barnes, you know, he's so emotionless doing it. Like, like you're literally seeing what it would feel like to be one of the people that he has to kill in this movie and the way he does it just without remorse. Um, I, I still think it's like terribly effective to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's very effective and, um, especially yeah, in the context of 1903, like you said, it probably felt like, wow. But even now, because one, it just kind of breaks uh, the kind of, you know, quote unquote, cinema language where taught is not what you're supposed to do. Like, you're not supposed to look straight into the camera. Or you're not supposed to do anything like that. Um, but also because it breaks, in a way, the language the movie has been using up to that point. No close ups, none of that. It's all very third person. You're, you're detached from everything. You're watching it from a distance. And then. The movie breaks the fourth wall, brings you into the action, and kind of says, well, how would you feel if you were involved in this story instead of watching it safely from a distance? Which, um, you know, I think a lot of the best uh, action or crime movies kind of, like, confront that element of, well, the violence isn't actually... Violence in general is just not actually fun. So, like, what? how do you feel now that we're kind of indicting you uh, for watching the violence from a safe distance, getting entertainment from innocent people getting mowed down. And, you know, I mean, there's a reason why Scorsese used it at the end of Goodfellas, because that's kind of the big point of the end of that movie. It's, well, what? how do you feel now? You know, what, 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 it's it's making you really question uh, your participation in the violence. And it's, it's funny you bring up, you know, it's important to bring up Goodfellas, because I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about the fact that I... And much like Mike was saying, like I find this shot in the best way unsettling. Still, yeah, even though it's over hundred years old, I find it unsettling. And I was thinking about, well, Scorsese replicates it at the end of Goodfellas. Why don't I find that as unsettling? And I think what it is is Tom. You're a hundred percent right talking about it breaking the rules of the movie. And I think part of that is there have been no close-ups. We don't know. I mean, maybe a historian who could pour through and pinpoint things. But as far as I know. When I watched Great Train Robbery, I couldn't point out to you which of the bandits is Justice D. Barnes. That face is not familiar to me. When I watch Goodfellas, I see Joe Pesci and I go, yeah, that's Joe Pesci. I've been watching him the whole movie. I know who this character is. I know all of this. And when he's firing the guns in my head, I'm figuring out which scene that's supposed to be or whatever. Whereas with this, you know, Mike talked about the remorseless face on, on Barnes. It's a face we don't know. It's a face that's not, you know, we haven't been shown this face in close-up so many more times, so it's extra unsettling that this guy just popped up. Is he one of the bandits that we saw before? Is he a new kind of bandit? Like, we don't, it, it, there's so much unfamiliarity there. He has no background. We've gone through a movie with so many detailed backdrops, there's no background behind him. It's just, it's so viscerally upsetting even now because of how unfamiliar it all feels. Uh, you know? it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's just storytelling, the cinematic buildup, you know, that the, 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 the pressure and release valve. I mean, 
it may not be the an exact one to one comparison I'm about to bring up, but it reminds me of um of Carpenter's Halloween. I brought it up before, but you don't see Michael's face until like twenty minutes before the movie ends. I mean, you don't see that mask. He's he's always off from a distance. He's in the shadows. Even when he kills Linda and Annie, you never see his face until he comes up with the phone when Laurie's on the phone breathing, and you go, "Oh my God!" It's this cold. It's literally death white blank face which is like you're saying the kind of feeling you get at the end of this movie you 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 don't know which one of the bandits this guy is but then you get that close-up of his cold emotionless face looking you down as he's firing at you and it's powerful it's it's another thing that filmmakers learn from this pressure and release the build-up and then you know let everything go there's a time for everything you don't want to overwhelm the audience with something and yeah, I mean, it's it's an iconic uh, final shot for a reason. Well, and he takes away, Porter takes away, because we've watched all the bandits get killed, right? Yeah. Hoorah, good guys have won. The posse's killed all the, the, the big... And so we're sort of in this celebratory mood, and then all of a sudden, this fucker's shooting us in the face. And yeah. it's like, what the hell just happened here? Like, why am I... Like, I feel like shit now. I was happy, and now I feel like shit, which is, you know, sort of the way the best like you said, my jump scares or stingers or just anything that undercuts the conventional narrative should make us feel, uh, it should, we should be, you know, feeling unsettled. And just to think, just thinking about the metatextual thing of that shot, it's all, it, it, it also leaves you unsettled because it's putting you in the frame of somebody that's in front of this guy who's about to get killed. And then boom, he starts shooting. And then what happens? It cuts to black. The movie's over. You're dead now. It leaves you feeling unsettled because you now have that idea of mortality in your head in a way that the de- some of the death scenes earlier in the movie don't have the same impact because, well, gunshot, cut to black, everything's over. That's kind of fucked up. That must have been real heavy for people in 1903. Heavy now must have been really heavy seeing it kind of the first time back then, you know? I mean, did anybody else have this thing where while that was happening, uh, they started playing Journeys Don't Stop Believing and then abruptly cut out? Or was that just my version? I think that was just you, buddy. (laughs) I told you, man, you never know how an exhibitor is going to cut in music. It can alter. (laughs) It can radically alter the themes. Well, you know, it's also funny. Like, I've mentioned Michael Mann a lot before, but I like I he I don't I haven't seen many movies that have taken that idea of someone getting shot and then having it fade to black. I mean, he, so he does that in black hat when Viola Davis dies, she's looking up at this, the, the cityscape of, I believe they're in Tokyo at this point and she's dying, bleeding to death. And we see from her POV POV and then it all just fades to black. And that really fucking affected me. It still affects me when I see it again. I think it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's it's just great. What, what what are we doing? We're an hour and thirteen, and it, it, it's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna second that because the DNA of everything, you know, so many of the movies that I love, from people like Jean Pierre Melville to John Woo to yeah. Michael Mann, you know, I mean, so much of their DNA is in this movie. If you are an action movie fan or or a crime film fan or a Western fan, like you owe it to yourself to watch this fucking movie because it it literally, you know, and I know one of the things when I was researching it is, is that there's was a pushback because 
there was this big myth built about it. And then a lot of film historians were like, yeah, it actually wasn't as influential as, as we were saying it was. I don't know whether it was or wasn't. I wasn't there. What I do know is that if you watch this, you can literally look and go, oh, okay, I see a better tomorrow in this, or I see the wild bunch in this, or I see heat in this. And maybe we're retroactively doing that, but I don't give a shit. I mean, this movie is so fundamentally important and frankly, just a hell of a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. So normally we wrap up these episodes talking about how these movies fared at the Oscars, but this is going to shock our listeners. Uh, Since the first Oscars happened in 1927, there were no Academy Awards given out for films of 1903. You don't say. What we decided to do to wrap this up is we are going to talk about our top five train scenes in movies. Each one of us picked our top five train scenes in movies. And I guess we will start. Uh, we'll start with our, uh, if you're comfortable, Mike, we'll start with you, our guest. And then uh, I'll go. And then Tom, sound good for everybody? Sounds about right. Sounds good. Yeah. All right. So, Mike, tell us your start. Uh, you want to go from five to one? Yeah, I didn't really order them too much, but I can I, I can do that on the fly. That's not a problem. And, and you know, and these are going to be ones that maybe they're not the best, but they're they're the ones that I always think of. You know, when you first asked me to do this, I'm like, OK, I just I, I didn't even do any initially do any research. I just closed my eyes and I was like, think of trains in movies and <laughs> Honestly, the amount of great train action scenes in movies are ridiculous. Oh, yeah. Uh, but for my top five, I am I or for my my first one, I've got to go with and, and I'm going a little more modern on most of my list just because I wanted to show how the influence is still being felt today. I'm going with the scene where Chris Evans is trying to shoot through the window at the guys who are trying to kill them in Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer. Hell I mean, yeah. Snowpiercer takes place entirely on a train, but I think that action scene is, as far as action goes, the high point of that movie. I absolutely love that scene and love that movie. I mean, I, I, I got, I'm going to say it right now, Snowpiercer's on my top five, too. I was going to cheat. And just say the entire fucking movie. <laughs> because it's what, yeah, it's... what, Tom? There was a rule that you decided you were going to try and skirt? Oh, golly. Listen, I'm Italian. I don't follow the rules, baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Snowpiercer is just one of the best at just finding the dynamism of what you could do on a train. And yeah, that that scene firing across as they're curving along is is just, it's it's a mind melter. It's one of the best, and you can't go wrong watching Snowpiercer at any point in the day. Any day. Just throw on Snowpiercer. That's how me me and Mike went to go see, uh, tried to get into an early screening of Guardians of the Galaxy 1. We couldn't get yep. in, so we were like, oh, that movie Snowpiercer's playing, like, a few blocks away. Let's Why don't we go see that? And, you know, movie ended, and I'm like, yeah, we made the right decision. Things worked <laughs> out well karmically for us. For once in our lives, the, the universe was helping us. So, Mike, what's your what's your number four? So, my number four is uh, is again kind of a bit of an outside the box, but honestly, it's a tremendous train scene, and it's the finale of Paddington Two <laughs> because that is one of the best fucking train scenes that I have ever seen in my life. I mean, complete with Paddington using candied apples to walk across the train, and uh, you've got. Hugh, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he's got to do the splits across the two trains. I mean, 
there's nothing you could want out of a train action scene that the finale of Paddington 2 doesn't give you. <laughs> I, I guess there's no guns, but other than that, there's nothing you could want out of a train action scene that Paddington 2 doesn't give you. Well, this is obviously going to be a uh, uh, film short's favorite episode of our show. <laughs> Well, listen, I, I think rather, you know, Mike pointed out the only thing you might want is guns. If Paddington started packing heat, that might actually get Tom to start watching the movies. Listen, if that little bear started assassinating fucking like <laughs> Russian gangsters or whatever and like using its its size like like Chucky to like just surprise people with how <laughs> deftly violent it is. I'm there, baby. No, but I, I agree with you, Mike. What a, what a great pick of a scene. That is delightful. Uh, what's your what's your number three? So again, so I, I like my list is like 20 movies long. So I'm trying to pick the ones that I think that there's little to no chance that anybody else on this show will talk about. Obviously, Snowpiercer didn't work out that way. Um, this this one's going to be a little bit of a break in the rule following Tom's lead because it's not technically a movie. It, I just rewatched it last night and it's still one of the most delightful train action scenes I've ever seen, which is the finale of the Wallace and Gromit episode, The Wrong Trousers, uh, where, I'm sorry, if you can watch Gromit grab the spare tracks, quickly put them down to try and get to the penguin and not just have joy in your heart, you're dead inside. I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's tremendously edited. It's incredibly well put together. And it's just, it's wonderful. Oh, I loved those growing up. I can picture that scene shot for shot in my head as as you named it that's this is already my favorite bit we've ever done this is already working out i'm already delighted <laughs> what's your what's your number two all right so my number two i would not be able to sleep with myself if i didn't name this one because anybody that follows me on twitter knows this is my favorite movie of all time i'm not saying it's the best movie of all time but it is my favorite movie of all time so i have got to go with the uh, elevated train fight scene uh, between Peter and Doc Ock in Spider-Man 2. Sam Raimi's my favorite director, and that is like the culmination of everything that Sam Raimi does well. It's tense. It's incredibly well shot. Uh, and it, it it tells an entire narrative in that one scene. I mean, just that one scene. Because one of the things I've always argued with action movies is that fight scenes in and of themselves, should tell a narrative. They need to move the characters forward. They need to be like musicals, where a fight scene moves everything forward. And there is so much character work being done in that scene, in addition to the incredible action that, frankly, hasn't been topped in a superhero movie yet, is just absolutely staggering. Again, spoiler <laughs> alert, that was on my five. Hey, hey Mike. Can I also add to that? Remember how you said you were trying to pick the scenes that you didn't think either of us would pick? Man, you really goofed up with that one because it's on mine as well. That's, we're all on the same <laughs> sorry, page. Guys. <laughs> no, that's sorry, that's guys. spectacular. That's that shows you where everyone's heads at. You know, I'm sure I'm sure the Far From Home trailer uh, aided that too when when we saw Molina again and all went, oh hey, remember how much Spider Man Two ruled. Yeah, Spider-Man 2, I always tell people, Spider-Man 2 is the only time in my life where leading up to the movie, I had a movie in my head that I wanted Spider-Man 2 to be, and it is the only time in my life where I've ever gotten the movie that was in my head. Like, it literally, I left that movie and I was like, I could not have asked for anything different than what I got. That was the movie that I wanted in my head. 
uh, right down to I even was like, please give some scene where Peter like gets his mojo back and we get it. And, and then we get the great shot where he drops his glasses and clenches his fist. And oh, my God, like I just even now I'm getting choked up about how much I love. And that so movie. what is what tops out for you your number one train scene in cinema? So my number one is, uh, and it was actually funny watching Great Train Robbery. And and again, we kind of didn't mention it, but just how impressive the stunts on top of the moving train, even though it was obvious the train wasn't going very fast, how impressive the stunts on top of the moving train were, uh, which made me realize, you know, obviously I thought one, and I don't know if it'll be on one of your lists, but obviously I thought of the general. Uh, but you guys have already covered that, so instead I have to go with the heir apparent to Buster Keaton. Oh, I know where you're going. The finale. Baby. I know where the you're finale going. <laughs> of Police Story Three Super Cop. I think, in my opinion, is the greatest train action scene that has ever been filmed. Absolutely. I mean, you got Michelle Yeoh jumping a motorcycle onto the train, Jackie Chan ducking helicopters. It's 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 action perfection. Absolutely, that was on my list. <laughs> Love it. Absolutely love it. I'm actually I'm excited. I've been I'm going to be revisiting all of the police story movies because my my partner's sister is a is uh she's eleven and she's just getting into or ten, I believe she's now. Uh is she's been taking karate classes, she's obsessed with uh martial arts action movies and, and Mike, you and some other friends on Twitter were kind enough to make some recommendations as I try and find movies that have good fighting but are also appropriate for a child. It's more challenging than you folks might think. Uh, 80s movies have surprise boobs a lot. Well, it they're not surprise really boobs. If it's, it's, if it's the 80s. If it's the 80s, just assume there are boobs <laughs> that are going to show up, especially if it's a PG movie, because <laughs> boobs can still show up. Yeah, it was really difficult trying to come up with recommendations that weren't just like the obvious ones, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, but, but I think we all kind of came together oh, yeah. to give you a she's, pretty good She's list. so excited. Um, it's very hyped. All right, so this I uh, I've got my top five train scenes, uh, some of which uh, will maybe be a surprise to some people, and some of which uh, won't be. Uh, we've known each other long enough; none of these will be a surprise to Tom. My number five is uh, from a, a franchise full of uh, action scenes and uh, a number of train scenes, but this is not only my favorite uh, in that franchise, but it's my favorite fight scene in that entire franchise which is going to be uh, the train fight from, from Russia with Love when Bond is up against Red Grant. Uh, there's, such a, there's such an intimacy to it. There's such a tightness to it, a tension, enough that they attempted to replicate it in Spectre, and I feel like it just doesn't have the same power. Uh, it's, it truly is uh, w- like watching one of those Hitchcock train scenes, but heightened in violence and tension. Bond using his little uh, choking wire in his watch uh, at one point. It's just such a great work of tension without being uh, hyper-violent or or without a thousand cuts or anything like that. It just understands its environment and uses its environment so well. Yeah, it was on my list. Yeah, I I almost just said (laughs) Bond. I mean, that was one of my picks was just Bond because like it feels like train action scenes and Bond movies are so tied together uh, you know i mean what i think at least fully a third of the bond movies probably have to have train based action scenes in them but i agree with you nothing ever comes close to that from Russia and uh and to be clear when we talk about train action scenes i want the audience to know i, I want you to feel the disappointment early 
I did not include the train fight from Wild Wild West on my list. I, I hope that doesn't disappoint our listeners too much. I know you're all it. I'm out. It. I'm done. <laughs> I'm going home. Also, maybe don't just uh, Google best train scenes because that might um lead you down different <laughs> oh, paths. Oh, God. All right. Uh, my number four, we don't need to say too much more about because my number four has already popped up on Mike's list. It's the fight from Spider-Man 2. Just the best. I don't, I, 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 there's not much more to add, but, you know, truly, truly one of the best fight scenes in superhero cinema. I mean, yeah, it, it rules. <laughs> like, just, just after the no, after the No Way Home trailer came out and people were just like posting the train fight from Spider-Man 2. It was like, let's just remember that non-stop Spider-Man 2's train fight scene. Just watching it even on a fucking tiny ass phone on Twitter. I'm just like, yeah, Cause it, this is the good well, shit. Well, cause it really, one thing about it is that it understands that why we love comic books is those giant splash pages that understand that when you're want and you're looking at a at a fight in a comic book, it's because you want to see some some you know action that understands spatial geography, action that understands possibilities within this fictional world. You've got a guy with robot arms and a guy that can shoot webs. Your environment should be conducive to those powers and abilities. You know, it shouldn't all just be in front of green screens with like gray rocks in the background like you you can build your environment to best interact with those powers see you say that's why you watch comic book cinema me i watch comic book cinema so i could watch a guy from fiddler on the roof fight the <laughs> asshole from molly's game <laughs> and there's there's so much of a tactile feel to it you know oh, yeah it's actually hurt you know it's like when they're fighting on the side of the train and you're seeing it from the inside of the train and their feet are just clonk clonk clonking on the side of the train and, and you're really hearing the impact of those punches and those hits it's yeah it, it just everything and i love modern comic book movies i i am not an yeah. mcu hater but everything feels so light and weightless and nothing about that scene feels weightless uh in spider-man 2 yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I don't hate modern comic book movies the way some people feel they need to do because they weren't 15 when they came out. But um, there is a vast difference between, like, I think there's good action scenes in the MCU, but, like, you just watch the way Raimi uses the camera as compared to the way others use the camera because Raimi was actually using the camera. He wasn't a second unit guy that was shooting it because they pre-produced action scenes two years before they started filming. This is just the best like he's just a pure cinema guy he just knows how to shoot a goddamn movie and it just it just feels like you're right in the middle of that scene just zipping along and just oh spider-man 2 <laughs> oh god i might watch that today uh, fuck it my number three uh we we uh mike touched on it and i had to include it I, we talked about it last season, so there's not too much more to say. But I did have to put the general. I felt it was un, I felt it was undeniable just the the physicality of what Buster Keaton is doing and the way that he can make a scene that is both viscerally thrilling from an action standpoint and also very funny is is remarkable. So uh, you know him on the front just like hitting up the thing. Oh, it's so good. It's amazing. Yeah. No. I. It was really the only reason I didn't include it on mine was like I said because you guys had already covered it. But uh, it's if people listening, like you gotta see the general. It's yeah. just and it's it's one of those where where do you even pick a scene? You just the entire fucking movie yeah. is is the train scene. 
Yeah, that's why I didn't pick it, and I also knew Mike was going to pick yeah. it, so I figured, fuck it, just let him. We'll we'll discuss it when Mike brings it up. So uh, there there's also I, I'll say this: there's no way I, I, there's no way Tom doesn't already know what the next two coming for me are. It's just a matter of the order. So my number two is from a movie I think might be the greatest movie ever made. Uh, if I'm going to talk about trains and cinema, I have to talk about this, uh, even though it's not a fight scene within a train or anything like that. It's uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, blowing oh, yeah. up the train yeah. tracks. I knew that was coming. The train derails, and then you have one of my favorite shots in film, just Peter O'Toole just dancing and, and flowing with the wind along the top of this derailed train like this like this lethal god of war. It is it is this incredible thing to witness that that it's it's in the moment when they blow up the tracks you realize, you know, you, you think of it almost like a, a David conquering Goliath thing, these scrappy rebels taking down this this powerful army. But then to watch Lawrence dance along the top, you come to realize that maybe he knows it, maybe he doesn't, that in his mind this isn't about fighting back anymore. It becomes about conquering. It's this incredible moment where this train can symbolize so much uh, in this one moment. So my number my number two is is just the 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 train in, in Lawrence of Arabia. I have always said that one of my favorite things about Lawrence of Arabia is is it is the story of this man, this incredible man who does this amazing thing for all the wrong reasons, and that scene perfectly encapsulates that. Like that is the scene where you're really like, oh no, this isn't about. Lawrence trying to this is just about Lawrence being Lawrence like he's a you know a megalomaniacal you know douche kind of and uh and that scene really encapsulates that that's a that is a great pick and a, and a, just an absolutely it's a movie that I don't revisit as much as I should just because it's so long but and also can I really quickly say has any director ever made blue eyes look as good as oh. David Lean makes Peter O'Toole's eyes look in that fucking that movie the, I, Tom knows my favorite maybe my favorite scene in any movie is just that close up on O'Toole's face and watching his, just the eye acting he does when he's about to yell no prisoners perfect and my number one I'll give a little preface here folks uh, to explain why it's my number one and why I love it so much uh, have you ever watched a movie and it's not going well and you're going along and going, Jesus, okay, they're making some choices here, but I get it. I like, I guess you couldn't do the thing that I want it to do. The thing I want it to do is too old timey. The thing I want it to do is too old fashioned. The thing I want it to do is X, Y, Z. Yeah, Tom knows yep. where we're going here. So I had this yep. experience with a movie that I love that, uh, I'm one of the very few people who does love it. Um, but it is my, my favorite train scene anyway. So there I am, about two hours deep <laughs> into the 2013 film The Lone Ranger, which at this point has had a very kind of subdued score and is very concerned with being kind of dark and murky and very like Pirates of the Caribbean, but in the Old West. Um, and the whole time I'm sitting there going, no, th I mean, are you just trying to do like modern Lone Ranger, whatever? And there is a moment when the girl gets kidnapped, she's on the train, the train takes off, somebody yells, and all of a sudden it plays. And the William Tell Overture plays just like it did in the old Lone Ranger films and the old uh, radio show. And thus begins a 13-minute 
action sequence of the Lone Ranger and Tonto chasing down this train set to the William Tell Overture. And for 13 glorious minutes, about the length of the Great Train Robbery, you have a movie that is suddenly unashamed of what it is, unashamed of its source material, willing to risk looking hokey. There's some comedy beats. There's some straight-up action beats. They're shooting guns to the rhythm of the William Tell Overture. There's the, the damsel yelling, but she punches the guy. It's just, it's everything that I would want that to be. It's everything that old movies used to do, that modern blockbusters are too afraid to do to wear their heart on its sleeve. It's so good that, to me, it overwhelms the rest of the film and makes me love it. It's so good that I'm pretty sure that's why it ended up on Tarantino's best of the year list. That sequence is so goddamn good, and it's everything that I want from a from a train chase. So my number one train scene of any film is from Gore Verbinski's The Lone Ranger. I don't think that's on anyone else's list. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So Tom knew where that was going. Yeah, I knew. I knew it. <laughs> Son of a it bitch. was it was actually on my long list because I had Yes I had the exact same re- I was in agony <laughs> watching that movie. I was yep. hating every second of it. And then that scene started and it happened and like you said, for thirteen glorious minutes, I was just in heaven. Which unlike you where it's so good that it made you go around to liking the movie for me it had the opposite reaction it's so good it made me go around to being even more fucking pissed (laughs) off at how shitty the rest of the movie is but that scene and like you said it's the same length as the great train robbery and that's what i do when i revisit it i just treat it as like this is a lone ranger short (laughs) film that was made in it was made in like 1946 and it was a, it's just a, a 13 minute Lone Ranger short film, but that scene is so fucking perfect. It is so perfect. Uh, yeah, that I, I mean, I certainly cannot fault you for, uh, for, for picking that number one. Yeah. I mean, that's another reason why it, I, again, I knew Mike was going to pick it. <laughs> what didn't even decide to put it on my long list, but yeah, it's, it's so, it's such a great chunk of filmmaking that, yeah, it like, like Mike, it made me so angry at the like, never-ending string of bullshit that what three-hour movie it is just keeps throwing at you and you just wish like god i wish gore Verbinski had a good writer and a good editor and a good producer to tell him hey why don't we whittle this down to the good stuff and not you know johnny depp is old man tonto and all this weird grim dark shit that was left over from when the script still had magic in it why don't we just focus on the lone ranger being you know the lone ranger it's it's a great fucking action scene. What whatever bullshit I could throw at Gore Vavinsky, that fucking guy, he knows how to he knows how to shoot an action scene. So Tom, let's get into let's wrap it up with your top five train scenes. I know we've heard a few already from other lists, but all right. So because some of them got, I did a little adjusting on the fly <laughs> because fuck it, I'm not, I we we talked about those movies already, so we're gonna do some new movies. Okay, so. I wanted to have a little variety with the, with these and have each scene have a little different action flavor to them. So uh, I'm going to say my number five, even though there's no real order to these in terms of quality, I'm going to say number five, uh, a different common, comic book train scene that I think is actually really great, pretty underrated in the action scene discussion. Even if the movie itself isn't great, it's fine, but this is a shining light in the middle of it. 
the bullet train fight from the Wolverine, I think is actually really fucking great. It's uh, just the way, again, the way it's shot, Mangold shoots it well. You you just get the sense of the speed of the train. Wolverine's power, not just with the claws, but just his strength and his intelligence at how he defeats these bad guys on the train. I think it's just um, a pretty dy- dynamite sequence in a, in a movie that could have used maybe one more dynamite sequence like it. But I think it's a great scene. And uh, yeah, the Wolverine, great, great train scene. It's my favorite Wolverine scene of any of the X-Men movies. It's my I, favorite Wolverine fight I, scene. I, I can't be mad at you about it. that. I can't be mad at you about that. Yeah, it's a great it's a great fight sequence. Absolutely. Uh, other Mike, do you have uh, any opinions on the bullet train scene? Can I scene? tell you, it's been so long since I have seen the Wolverine. And that's what I'm saying. Like, she and I have been doing these films. And when we watched X-Men Origins, I just was kind of telling her, I promise it's going to get better stick with it like with these with these wolverine films um because you have got to watch the extended cut of the yes. wolverine do yeah. not watch the theatrical watch the extended cut the yeah. theatrical is gar- hot garbage in the third act the extended cut makes it much now better. i remember what i loved about that in particular what i loved about film was just that it did feel unapologetically pulpy in in a lot of senses and when you talk about that scene like that is the kind of thing that it it's willing to just kind of like we talked about with Lone Ranger that it is willing to wear its heart in its sleeve and kind of just be like we're there's no sense of self-consciousness to it it just goes for it which i really appreciate so um my number 4 we it was briefly talked about but it wasn't anyone's pick so i'm going to say my number 4 to get this feeling in my list is the train fight sequence from Spectre I think it's a lot closer to the quality of From Russia with Love than a lot of people might want to admit because the rest of the movie similar to Lone Ranger is bullshit. Um, <laughs> but I think it actually manages to kind of do what that, for, that from Rush with love scene does, but with a little more, I don't want to say pep or make it seem like it's better, but I just love how completely overwhelmed bond is in this fight sequence. I mean, he feels a little more measured up to Robert Shaw in from Rush with love, but against Batista, he's just out of his element. He, and th- there's moments where you see it on his face where he knows I'm fucked. And he's just scrambling, trying to figure out some way to stop this absolute behemoth that's coming his way. It's like a train is on the train coming after B- Daniel Craig and it's quick. It's vicious. It's just destructive. Uh, it's the one shining light of action in this movie where the action is, almost comically lifeless. I think it's actually pretty dynamite and um, wanted a, a little Bond action on my list. So there you go, Spectre. I got, I saw Spectre once and uh, so I don't actually have much. I remember that scene being pretty good, but uh, I, I unfortunately on this one don't have a ton to add to it. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's not a good movie. So I don't <laughs> I. I I, I watch every like I rewatch Bond movies religiously. I'll throw them on as background noise. Inspector, I get that feeling of just like, eh, not today, not today. <laughs> Maybe sometime, but not today. Not like this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I I said my thoughts on From Russia with Love. I think it's, I think it's 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 probably one of my favorite scenes in that film. But it's uh, it's you know, the yeah. best scene in the film. Yeah. <laughs> I think maybe I have the feeling with the Spectre train scene that you do about the Lone Ranger, where it's just like it just makes me realize like what what happened here. Yeah, um, yeah, not good. So uh, we're going to go to my number three, 
And we're getting a little martial arts and a little blood in my list right now because we're going with Hammer Girls fight on the subway uh, in the Raid oh, 2. Yeah, Fuck yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that is a moment. And this is a movie where you're just lousy with amazing action sequences that you could pluck them out and say, this is the best action sequence ever. No, this is actually the best action sequence ever. But that moment in the Raid 2 where they're doing the Godfather intercutting between all the hits that are going on, and you see Hammer Girl, and for the first time, you realize what her whole shtick is, and she just pummels the fucking shit out of all of these guys on the train. It is electric. It uses the space to its advantage. It's brutal. It's quick. It's just, ah, oh, Gareth Evans is the fucking best, and... Yeah, I couldn't, I, when I heard train sequence, it may not be my number one, but the Raid 2, that sequence is, oh boy, so good. Hammer girl, crush me with your hammers, baby. <laughs> That's the one thing I wish the Night Come for us has, so just to have Timo's version of, like, Evil Dead 2 crank to 11 style violence on a train. <laughs> Yeah, man. I mean, Julia Stell's amazing. That movie's amazing. Like, I fuck. I, I, I have nothing to add because I mean, I think it's pretty well known how much I love the Raid Two and how much I love Julia Stell. So, I mean, that's just that's terrific. Yeah. Now, I Tom knows my deep love for, for Raid Two, but it's it's paired with the fact that I am one of the probably few people who, uh, when the first Raid came out and was getting all the buzz, I saw it and it was not. I was not a huge fan of the first Raid. Um, you know, which I know is, is heresy to say, but I was not a huge fan. So when the raid two was coming, Tom and I went to see it and I just remember feeling like, all right, let's, let's, let's see, but I'm sure I'm going to walk out unfazing. And that movie has a magic and a power to it that just drew me in. And I, I adore it. It's one of my favorite action films. And Tom's right. That hammer girl sequence is just visceral and powerful and just knocked me out when we first saw it. I was raving about that movie. Yeah, it's the best. Uh, so number two for me, uh, going a little outside of the lines here, surprise, surprise, but I think it falls within the line of the parameters we've set. It is, in my opinion, the best car chase sequence of all time. Mm -hmm. the, the sequence from The French Connection, where Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle is flying down the streets of Brooklyn, trying to catch up to the, el the elevated train. While one of the guys, one of the French drug dealers had just tried to assassinate him and just, I mean, in its own way, by bringing the action down to the car and that by having the train being elevated and, but just having the speed and the recklessness of what Gene Hackman's doing on those roads in Brooklyn, crashing into shit, just, just like a fucking madman. And you even get the added benefit of what the assassin's doing in the train. Like he's getting into fights. He's shooting people. He's, trying his best and it's just like i said i think it's the best car chase sequence in all of cinema i don't think anything's topped it and by adding that element of the train it gives it such a flavor that no other chase scene in general has ever felt has ever had and um i just think it's just absolutely just dynamite i sometimes just throw french connection blu-ray in just to watch the car chase sequence just to give me a shot to the heart of adrenaline it's the best yeah, it's one. It's so unique compared to both car chases and train scenes, right? Like yeah. it's so unique and it's so 
Again, it's Friedkin, so it's visceral. You know, he's probably trying to kill 57 people while filming it. Um, I mean, it just... And again, it's another one of those where action scenes need to tell a narrative. They have to have their own internal narrative. And that movie 100... Or that scene 100% does. The characters are different after that scene than they are when they start. And and yeah, I love it. Well, so... uh... Tom, what's your number one? No, I, I'm not the biggest French Connection guy. Tom knows this. We've, you know, when Tom talks about not, uh, you know, thinking it's the greatest car chase, I think back in college, we started arguing about whether French Connection or Bullet had the better car chase. And I think we're still arguing that 13 years later. But I agree with you guys insofar as I do. I, I mean, I think it's, it is visceral and I do appreciate the way that it, it, it tells a, it tells a story. And it, quite frankly, I will happily watch. Much as I'm not a French Connection fan, I will happily watch that scene anytime it's on. And just like Mike said, uh, it was William Friedkin, so he shot that scene on the streets yep. of Brooklyn without a permit. So that was actually people getting the fuck out of Gene <laughs> Hackman's way. So my number one is something that's been mentioned on the show before, something mentioned earlier this season, actually. Uh, my number one pick is the end sequence of John Frankenheimer's The Train, when uh, it feels like the Nazis are actually going to get away with all of the art on the train, that Lancaster's the last man of this resistance standing that's been trying to stop them from getting all that art out back to uh, Berlin. And Lancaster is is further ahead up the tracks, and he's fucking with the tracks trying to stop them. And then you get that great moment where the Nazis don't realize what's about to happen until it does, and that fucking nutjob Frankenhammer actually derails an entire goddamn train. And Lancaster comes out on top. And I just, nobody was like Frankenheimer in his prime, man. I know Mike probably has a lot of love for Frankenheimer's action filmmaking. I mean, he just, he, he did what, you know, Chaplin wanted to do. It was like, no, we're going to actually crash a goddamn fucking train. He crashes two goddamn trains in this movie, I should say. Ugh. And it's just tactile, it's visceral, and it's just that that tension of, is Lancaster going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to stop the fucking Nazis? And he does. And it's a great fucking, I want to see this movie in a theater, just with an audience where everyone just goes nuts when that train derails. Oh, I love it. Frankenheimer, you're the man. Man, I was so hoping I was going to make it. I thought I was so close to getting out of this episode without a movie coming up that I hadn't seen before. But fuck it, Tom. You just ruined it for me. Uh, I have not seen the train. I am going to have to now immediately seek it out because I have I unfortunately I, I am a massive John Frankenheimer fan. This is one that's been on the list for a long time, and I just never got around to seeing it. It just got a great Kino Lorba disc uh, earlier this year, maybe late last year, but it's a great disc. It looks great, sounds great. I think you're gonna you're gonna be in heaven watching Burt Lancaster as uh you know obviously a French resistance fighter. It's uh it's on my list to watch as well because Tom actually picked it last season uh, as his as one of the films that we yeah because uh, at the end of every episode we uh, pick films that we are going to nominate to the registry. At the end of last season, we actually submitted our nominations, so John Frankenheimer's The Train has officially, formally been submitted for consideration to be inducted into the National Film Registry, uh, which means, uh, if it happens, I might as well get around to watching it. So, Mike Scott, you will watch it, I will watch it, our audience, you guys all watch it, and you can let us know on Twitter what you think of it. So on that note, uh, Mike, do you have a Twitter and a show and all these things that you want to plug before we sign off? 
Sure thing. You can follow me personally at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can follow the Adkins Undisputed show on Twitter at Adkins Podcast. Or the easiest way to find us is to just go to Linktree slash Adkins Undisputed Pod. Uh, the podcast itself is everywhere you can hear podcasts. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I'm so thrilled you came on for this. This was a lot of fun. Oh, this was so much fun. This Thank was a blast. So we yeah. also this may have uh, more than quadrupled the length of the Great Train Robbery in talking about it, which only speaks to the film's impact. I hope that folks uh, check out Atkins Undisputed. I'm a bit, I, uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. I look forward to what's ahead. And please, look, if you need somebody to talk about when Scott kick flips a, uh, a, a football into the back of a net in the Pink Panther 2006, you know where to find me is all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we still need to get, we need to get Action Cat on oh, at some yes, point. That's, you know, we've been talking about that for a while. Is, we got to get that Action is Cat That is true. That is absolutely true. I will let you know uh, she has a lot to contribute by going <clears throat> because she doesn't know how to meow. Um, <laughs> that's that's 100% true. She's grown up around a dog. She doesn't know how to meow. But, uh, Listen, she's she's available. She's got a high rate, but we'll try and work it out. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Malton and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. So boys, to wrap up like we usually do, what films would you include in the registry? A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. So we talked a lot about The Great Train Robbery's place as an action film. And for a while, my line of thinking was, well, just pick another significant action movie. And I had a couple in mind that were like, well, here's a great action movie that isn't in the registry. And for whatever reason, it wasn't sitting right with me. And then I rewatched this again. And I, it, one of the elements that stuck with me about The Great Train Robbery is its narrative. It's the fact that it's full of visceral thrills. It is a crowd-pleasing film. It is, you know, uh, purely spectacle. But it has a message at its core about how crime doesn't pay. Like, that's that's its message at the end of the day, is you're watching people, bad people, pull off a heist, uh, pull off some crime, and then in the end, you watch them get gunned down. It may be a simple message, and it may be a message a lot of people miss, but it's still a message at the heart of this film. And so that got me thinking of another film that is very much a spectacle. It's very viscerally thrilling. It is massively popular. Uh, and at its core is, again, a very simple message about how crime doesn't pay, how these criminals get their comeuppance in the end. Uh, and on top of that, I was thinking about the ending shot of Justice T. Barnes shooting the camera and all the things that it influences. And this film that I'm picking for the registry has a very famous scene of somebody, uh, our main character, holding a gun and shooting it toward the camera uh, in a way. Uh, and it's a movie that I'm surprised isn't in the registry because of its cultural impact. But the movie it's a remake of is in the registry. 
and that is Brian De Palma's Scarface. Um, mm. It is a movie that I've discussed with Tom. It's the only movie I can think of that is both terrible and a masterpiece <laughs> insofar as there's elements of it, like the accents, things like that, that you can say are totally hacky. And it's, I do not begrudge anybody who watches De Palma's Scarface and goes, that movie's bad. I get it. I, I, it maybe is, but also when you watch it, it's so masterfully done. It's such a crowd pleaser. It's it's so visceral. It's so engrossing. My entire disdain for uh, America in the 1980s is summed up in the push it to the limit montage. But I just, I think that there's something, there's a great parallel there about the fact that at the end of the day, Scarface is kind of, you know, the the ending of the three of these, you know, these bandits getting shot to death in the in the woods kind of unceremoniously by a posse, you know, with Tony Montana face down in the in the pool, you know, with the the world is yours above him. Like there is a very simple message of crime does not pay at the core of Scarface, a movie that is viscerally thrilling. And there is that same kind of indictment of in the same way that we talked about with Great Train Robbery you know, ending with shooting you, kind of criticizing you for how swept up you got in watching these guys commit crimes, even though you know it's wrong. Uh, Scarface is a movie that is very much telling you, like, yeah, look, you're loving watching this. And so many people have the Scarface poster, you know, the, the James Franco and Spring Breakers, I got Scarface on repeat shit going on, who seemingly missed the whole point of the ending. I just, I think that it's a, a stirring indictment of, of a lot of things about American politics in the 80s. Uh, there's a lot going on on in that movie but at its core it's the same simple message that was being conveyed by edwin s porter uh you know almost 80 years prior to the film so i think brian de palma's scarface absolutely should be in the registry cannot argue with that great movie definitely uh the the uh the argument is there and uh i approve so for my pick i was struck by so much of the movie i was struck by how for it, 12 minutes, and it's not much of the runtime, but in, when it comes to 12 minutes, it's actually a hefty percentage of the runtime. It's about the process of how these guys rob the bank. It's the process of, uh, not, not the bank, the fucking the bank, the train, idiot. It's um the process of what they do, tying up the uh, the, the, the manager, uh, getting them to put, do the water, and then sneaking on, and then tying everybody up and all that. And just, uh, you know, they got to blow up the, they got to blow up the trunk. They got to get all the people off. They're going to rob them and all of that. Uh, how there's that code with the gangsters, uh, how there's the code, just the humanity of it all. And then the cross cutting at the end, all of that stuff. And how I mentioned it before, how this thing just spread its tendrils out throughout history. You could see it through everything, but the pick that I think I have to go with, which also ties into Mike's, uh, few of this movie being about crime doesn't pay uh it's a movie that for as short as the grain train robbery is uh this movie is long uh i am choosing uh, a movie i'm also surprised is not in the film registry i'm choosing michael mann's heat i just see so much of heat in the great train robbery i see that opening uh armored car robbery and how they have to kill the cops because well wayne grow killed the other guy so we can't have witnesses uh, how they'll kill without remorse if they have to, but they're trying not to. I think the uh, the iconic bank robbery scene is very reminiscent of this just this movie in general. Uh, for all the planning, for all that they try to do, things go wrong, people die, and it becomes a mess. I think about the cross-cutting between the cops, between Pacino and De Niro, 
uh, reminiscent of the cross-cutting at the end between the posse and the, the gang. How it ends with the gang, they all die. Uh, I mean, except for Val Kilmer's character, but how it ends with the Al Pacino gunning De Niro down because De Niro's the great train robber and he's just going to keep robbing trains and he has to get stopped because that's the only way this guy can go. And I just see so much between the two. Uh, I see a lot of Michael Mann in The Great Train Robberies, but I had to pick one, and I'm picking his greatest movie, his most influential movie, the movie that is most touched by The Great Train Robbery. Uh, I think Heat needs to be in, and I think paired with The Great Train Robbery, uh, it's the right pairing. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Mike Scott for joining us. Next week, we're giving you an episode you can't refuse. We honor the 50th anniversary of The Godfather with special guest Patrick Willems. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.